0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another wonderful episode of 30 Minute Worlds. We're so happy to have you with us. But first, we're going to give you guys a little bit of news on our production schedule moving forward for 2021.
1: We started this podcast producing one episode every two weeks, which is realistic for us. And then when quarantine hit, we moved into producing an episode weekly, which is a lot of fun. And really allowed us to pump out some worlds, a lot of which were crap. Oh yeah. Uh, some of which were really good. The
0: people, our producers told us the percentage of crap worlds rose by over two hundred percent this season. Which since we've doubled our episode production is
1: great for That's us. It's really good. We're putting out it's about content that matters, not quality. But uh <laughs> That's right. As quarantine wears off, we're gonna go back to the old schedule of releasing episodes once every two weeks.
0: Yep. Nature is healing. The boys are going out in public. We got vaccinated. We're stockpiling supplies for the, you know, inevitable Chinese invasion.
1: We're ready to go. For the second wave. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So without further ado, enjoy our revisit, the long-awaited revisit of the Mendican Gate, and we will see you guys in two weeks. Thanks for listening.
2: What do you say? We cut through the bullshit. No banter. We get right into it.
1: What? A banterless podcast. Is he podcast? allowed to do that? Is he allowed to cut through the bullshit? That's this right. Power.
3: Hold on, hold on. I gotta, I gotta consult the, I gotta consult the, uh, the bylaws. Um, yeah, there's nothing in the, nothing in the book that says he can't cut through the bullshit. That seems unfair to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's never been tried
1: until now. See if bullshit was too deep. If we're doing it, I would like to
2: voice my dissent. But see, bullshit
0: does sound like an episode of our show.
2: It does say in the bylaws that you are allowed to officially lodge your dissent in the form of four hours of digressive bullshit. Could
3: could I actually can I get a VRBO for my ascent? What? I need to. Was that meant to get a laugh?
1: Is there like a person who's listening? to that and he's like ha huh.
3: wait what did you say
1: Fuckin-
2: i feel like my goal of cutting through the <laughs> bullshit is being undercut right now it is actually yeah. this is a Let's
1: brilliant <laughs> political move <if> I <laughs> there's actually nothing in the bylaws the that says
2: we can't do this so Melvin's <laughs> trying to get the filibuster removed yeah i'm getting filibusted right now i <laughs> want to get into it because over. we have a special show today that's right we are returning to a past world we are unearthing the treasure and refining it, turning it from shit to gold. It was gold already. And we're, <laughs> refi- it from we're polishing
1: it into burnished gold. Gold to burnished gold. Very good. Exactly. Uh, new listeners, if you're starting here, uh, you actually should scroll all the way back down through our catalog, which is the sea of bullshit that Dan described, mm-hmm. uh, and click on... Season 2, Episode 2, The Mendicant Gate, because that is the world that we're revisiting today. Once you're all caught up, you can start off right here.
2: Right, so uh, when we revisit the world, we try to basically flesh it out, to take interesting and intriguing concepts from the first one um, and make them more in- full um, to explore things that went unexplored before. And what we've done is each of the lads has gone and taken a section of the world. Um, which was, as you know, because you've listened to it, a riff on what if in the American expansionist West, devils interceded and offered contracts and, and tricked and troubled their way to basically escalating every conflict that was already there in the bloody West. I took the devils. Um, so I, I thought about their their true nature and some of the mechanical stuff with them. And I'm Belvin. Are we saying our names?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm Walt, although you already know that because I'm the only person you remember on this show. I've been there <laughs> since day one. <laughs> the main character. You, talking to you.
3: <laughs> sort of the protagonist of the show. <laughs> Planting uh- ideas in your head. Well, which, uh, what did you take?
1: I picked the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, an important faction, uh, in our <laughs> emergent desert war that
3: we described last episode. One might call them the protagonists. Charitable. You could.
1: Yeah, yeah. It fits perfectly. And, um, Dan, I took for my area of interest,
0: the government in the East, uh, in the brewing, uh, antebellum United States. Uh, the devil's, uh, interference in the activities of the country have made things a lot, kind of, well, I think it'd be harder to make a country in the ring of civil war worse, but they've managed it.
3: Uh, and I'm Zach and I got, uh, Native Americans and, uh, actually I could just, just in general, uh, but I just ended up focusing on, uh, mostly the youths.
2: So, uh, let's just dig right in. Um, I'll start, because I I did some thinking about the devils, and if I recall correctly, and by the way, I want you all to be jumping in, um, like, throw out any ideas you have, any criticism, suggestions, etc. I want this Mm -hmm. to be collaborative, even though we have different sections. Uh, I think all we established in the first episode is that the devils are sort of from a parallel dimension that's sort of crystalline. Um, And a little more gray and that there's something that they get from this world in addition to having the mechanics of putting contracts in front of people and having them fulfill the contracts in exchange for boons, which usually just end up escalating conflict. Like it it leads to dark things as a deal with the devil usually does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not right.
3: I think I think we um, I think we touched on like why they would want to be in our world. And like generally, it's that our world is more um, inter- entertaining to them.
2: Right? Yeah. yeah. So I thought yeah. more about the motivation, and let me, let me know what y'all think of this. So the world that the devils hail from, and of course they aren't devils because this isn't like they're from hell. Uh, the world they're from is sort of more purgatorial than anything. Uh, it's Ooh. it's very cold and featureless and entropic by default. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're always probing. The entities within this realm are always probing to break into another realm. Um, and they get energy. They get vitality from um, psychic distress, psychic energy, um, nice. and to a certain extent, physical energy. I'll get into that later. But at the start, it's psychic. So so they
3: kind of feed off And they're not physical
2: yeah. beings themselves, right? They don't have bodies. Um, where they're from has different rules of physicality, but I want to establish that eventually they can get corporeal form in this world, but it's not. That's interesting. So this Mm -hmm.
1: actually dovetails kind of well with Mormon mysticism, uh, which I did some research on. Uh, According to Mormon tradition, there existed before even like God existed a number of like what were called spirit intelligences uh, that didn't have bodies. And these eventually became human souls. They, they, Participating in the war in heaven between God and Satan, and those among them who sided with God became humans. They got physical bodies. Uh, I kind of workshop the Mormon explanation for these creatures is that these were ancient spirit intelligences that sided with Lucifer and were not rewarded with physical bodies, and that God sealed them away with their master in America a promised land that humanity would eventually discover when
2: they were spiritually ready. Sure. Um, That's a fun in universe explanation from (laughs) the Mormons. And impossible. I mean, I I don't think it's interesting to say like exactly the origin of the dimension, but just knowing that there's this dimension, um, I don't think of them as evil uh, because they don't really comprehend it that way, but they are mischievous in a bloodthirsty kind of way because that's just what fuels them. They care nothing for human life.
0: The principal motivation is to, is to create anguish and suffering, basically.
2: Right. I mean, the things that we see as suffering and also the things we see as sin are tasty to them. So they're drawn that direction. But theoretically, they, they do get some energy from strong emotions like joy. They just get like less. Um,
3: I, I, think a, I think a more enlightened um, idea about good and evil is to think about them – as selflessness and selfishness. Sure. It starts to get um, tied up if you say that a, a one god is good and one god is evil. In like-
2: right, I think that's a good way to think about it. And I guess in that spectrum, they are extremely selfish and therefore mm-hmm. quite bad. Um, right. I think that the natives would have pre-existing contact with them and think of them as like dark trickster spirits. I don't think that they'd be seen as, like, the devil, because that wouldn't be the cosmology that the Native like Americans would be all, approaching yeah. from. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I
3: think they definitely have a much different relationship with devils than, um, you know, white people have, uh, just because they have a different frame of mind about it, right?
2: Yeah, and they could also mm-hmm. maybe have some metaphysical protection set up. Um, I'll let you get into that when you get to your section, or you can think about that now. But um, I think the Natives would... Be prepared to a certain extent.
3: I think um, Native American uh, mythologies in general have a slightly healthier relationship with like tricksters, trickster elements in their uh, mythologies, whereas like a puritanical Christian faiths tend to like absolutely decry like like you know Satan, the devil. Like if you're if you're ascribing these sort of emotions to basically selfishness and not inviting any selfishness into you, then you're turning that into a taboo and it's, it's actually going to be kind of um, uh, damaging on your site. It's going to have a lot more power over
2: you. Yeah. I I think it's important. The context of the religiousness of the settlers, like I I think that only helps the devils and their purpose. That,
1: and I think too, though, that a lot of the people that went out West kind of, Weren't necessarily all that religious, right? So you either got hmm. hyper religious people, but you also have people who were kind of tired of the puritanical or stifling elements of the East and just wanted land
2: and just wanted right. a good I, I don't mean more just like yeah. the context of Christian society and all of the mores yeah. thereof. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there would be more people who sort of supersede that, want to be amoral and successful, and they would. Be easy food for the devils. Um, I think the mechanics of the contract in the boon, uh, we, we established this on paper. It's um, a physical thing that can be destroyed. Yeah. yeah. I think that happens because of Mendicus, the guy who opens the gates. I think mm-hmm. Mendicus is into like some alchemical stuff. He has like some pterodon on him, some like mm-hmm. some like aspirational deal with devil stuff on him. Like not really accurate um but you know what an aspiring magician would have on him yeah. and so the form that they first take in terms of the contracts is physical is like an actual contract you sign mm-hmm. um and perhaps uh you get 3 days of boon and then you have to sign the contract or not
1: oh i see a trial period yeah and people yeah. almost
2: always sign because the trial period is so fun yeah
1: yeah it's so yeah. Lit. it's it's neat because the contracting process, like no one would ever admit to really doing it. So it makes sense actually that in setting, not a lot is known about who's contracted and who's not. There's a lot of superstition or rumor about who is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since these are documents that are actually hidden, uh, the whole process would be very secretive, I would right. think. Because no one would be like, I did it. Here's my <laughs> Here's yeah, my definitely. shit that I
2: signed. Right. Um, and just to throw out the last thing I thought about I do think eventually they would gain corporeal form I think there'd be a bit of a feedback loop where as they like feed on people and their psychic uh, energy um, it's kind of like a gray person getting doused with color they start to like just like absorb some mm-hmm. humanish elements like maybe in their realm they start to play act like western robber barons a bit um mm-hmm. And so some people who get especially doused with this stuff want to have, like, form, physical form. So they manipulate people into setting up rituals in certain areas. Like maybe the American South, there's a swamp, that there's another gate set up. Um, And those devils feed on physical energy. So, like, the Civil War would be something the the swamp devil would be encouraging because so there's I'm,
1: two cadres of devils.
2: Yes. I and mean, well, the devils that the, they're physical devils and non-physical devils. Physical devils come later and they they benefit from physical and energy. Yeah, they're cranking up the physical violence. I think there would be a a devil in physical form who works with William Randolph Hearst on trying <laughs> to strip mine as much as possible. <laughs> and we can we can talk about that more later,
0: but that actually fits into something I'd been considering for Bleeding Kansas as well. Okay, well, true. it's uh,
1: funny too, there are so many meteoric business uh rises around this time of people like Hearst and stuff. You could easily attribute that to a supernatural uh cause, actually. Right. Yeah.
3: So you, you kind of established now that there's there's at least two portals. Uh the, the f- first one
1: a second one they, will open. It's probably not open yet.
3: Uh right. Around it's probably around the time like Bleeding Kansas is a good um is a good mark. For the listener, um,
1: we officially set the setting, by the way, in the year 1859. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just too much good shit that happens in 1859. It's a really oh, nice, yeah. like, closing
0: point for us.
3: What we established now is we have these two gates. The first one is the one uh, that Mendicus like, accidentally opened with his magic, uh, magician bullshit mm. in 18... 18- at 55 48 45
1: in uh, Pike's Peak around that area of Colorado right. yeah. which
3: there was a gold rush in Pike's Peak in in our in our in the real world in in like uh, into the 50s so this is like an early gold rush that um
1: brought mendicus there yeah yeah brought
3: mendicus there mm. um that gate is a thinner gate like or a, a it's a more tenuous connection like they can't come through as readily so i think what happened is that later in like probably around um pro- maybe the end of bleeding kansas mm-hmm. or which is
1: where we're at now i would say 1859 the present 1859, day
3: of the setting yeah right around um uh james brown did I say James Brown?
0: I wanna set it shortly. I, I want John, I have an idea for John Brown's raid in the immediate aftermath that I wanna work with. Um
3: do you think that the second portal opened like very soon before John Brown's raid? Or or because of John Brown's raid?
2: Who? Um Delvin, what do you think? Uh y'all are deeper into the history of this area than I am. So I'm well, neutral it right on what now, we want to explain like, more of what you're I was talking promised,
1: about. I was promised I would never have to look at any history for this historical
3: <laughs> I w- set. I don't want to get too too gritty on it, but like the um sort of locus of this entire story is the nature and location and timing of the portal. So I just wanted those to be totally I guess.
2: Out. I mean, to me, it's not even yeah. that important.
0: <laughs> is there anything like with Devil's uh and I, belvin do you think if somebody cuts a deal with a devil mm-hmm. and then leaves the vicinity of the gate or just like i want to know what the scope i can involve the boons like dealing in boons with because i yeah because i i want to talk about stuff with like in the east like government people getting under in the thrall of uh yeah
1: no i th- that happens Yeah, I think if you want to find the devils, you have to go out west. But once you've found them, you can carry the magic anywhere. I think that draws a lot of people to the west, too, which
2: is interesting for conflict. I think uh, it'd be like how spores can travel along the wind and Mm -hmm. go different places. I I think it it starts at the epicenter, um, but maybe there's some contagion-type element of, like, if someone has a devil deal and they go east, like, Mm -hmm. the people around him are susceptible and— I like that. I
3: can work with yeah. that. Well, I figure the second gate was actually a gambit by a devil that had gotten a very strong hold of someone and was creating this physical portal. Like a physical portal to bring devils like physically more more physically through yeah, than just know, like psychically um, through.
2: I I think it might be nice just narratively if Mendicus that original fuck up um ends up just fully possessed and becomes an agent of them i like it more if
1: mendicus is like we don't know where he is and we know of him and we know that he did it because the devils attribute according to them they attribute the opening of the gate to mendicus but like he's kind of gone and people are looking for him
3: well yeah we don't know where he is he's like he's like the the Dark Wanderer, right?
1: Right, right. Like, the Mormons yeah. are hunting him because they believe he's the Antichrist. And they think he's, like, it's their job to punish him. We could settle on where Mendicus is, but I think it's not as important as, like, the rest of the setting, well, to I be honest.
2: maybe mechanically to set up these physical portals, like in the southern swamps um in william randolph hearst's office etc <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, i think he was definitely in mexico city at the end of the
3: mexican-american war yeah mendicus like wanders
2: oh he you just see photos of him in historical events that go really bad it's like it like yeah, I like, yeah. I like that i like that
0: he's yeah he's a man comes around he just a <laughs>
2: spooky guy in kind the of. <laughs> I want to move on to one of the other deep dives. um, Chessman and Waltz, which would you like to go next?
1: Uh, I can go. Well, actually, it makes more sense for Chessman to go.
3: Yeah, I have. um, I have a few ideas about. I mean, first of all, I kind of just want to relay like the history of like the Utes in Colorado, which is where the original um, portal opened. Okay. Is um is really is really interesting. I picked up this book, "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee," which has an has, uh, an account titled "The Utes Must Go." Um, which, I mean, to summarize it, essentially, they uh put this guy, what's his name? Essentially, they put this guy Nathan Meeker in charge of, in a word, like civilizing. Native Americans in um in Colorado ah, which of course didn't work because they were already civilized yeah um
0: was he with the Indian Bureau or
3: yeah, he was running essentially you i think about it kind of like a mission um he tried to get them to like plant shit and uh and like you draft horses and shit, but and like, that didn't work. Yeah, in like the 1540s, they got horses from Spain, and they they've had they've been nomadic ever since. I mean, they weren't even nomadic before that. Without, yeah, there without were horses. you
1: know obviously like the fallacy of like trying to civilize you know the Native American yeah. people was that like they had agriculture and civilizations that were more Western, kind of like you know the Cahokia Empire, like east of the Mississippi. But that model mm-hmm. of civilization didn't really hold up as well west of the Mississippi. Uh, and they were living kind of the life that with their limited technological means, it was like optimal for them to live. Well, I,
2: I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. If, is that true, Walt? Because my it understanding was, it, is Colorado that Colorado and Utah were not farmland. They really were bad no. land to oh, settle sure, in. Sure. Just the whole idea of like the, the technology aspect. They had good technology. It's just Native Americans were essentially living in a post-apocalyptic scenario once we really got here Mm -hmm. because 90% of them had been decimated by plague and illness. Yes. I think what Walt means is
0: that, like, they can't support large population centers. Yeah. In
1: order to turn the soil of Colorado into arable soil to farm would require advancements that not even the United States had made at that point in history. Yeah, yeah. yeah, We didn't – like, New Mexico – was like the in arizona were like the last states to be populated uh until we finally figured out how to irrigate them correctly so they could actually farm so it's that's that's more what yeah. i meant
3: okay that was how gold rushers and homesteaders like set up they would set up shop on basically it was like an open plane they'd be like oh it's a it's free land no one's using it and then before then you know before a year had come around um, you know, the utes would roll up like, what the fuck? This is our plate. This is our Beacious. pasture land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I didn't see you here. i like, okay. But it's, it's, they have to move around to different pastures to keep their horses fed.
0: It's funny to like, to think about it as them believing that they're coming out and civilizing the land when they're literally living in houses made of dirt and they don't have, they can only burn animal dung. Like they have no fuel for <laughs> fires. Like, see, so we, we go west and live in
1: like dirt houses
2: and burn worst worst conditions, conditions.
1: and farm in the stupidest way. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. So, Jasmine, what's the like uh, setting unique take on the Utes? Like, what how are how are they changed by being in this scenario? Gun blades. Well, that's
3: the frame. That's the frame of this. Is that it's it's actually I don't think it's really that big of a change to say that following the uh, opening of this of this gate, everyone blamed the native americans uh i actually there was a quote i found somewhere they called them red devils and it got me thinking maybe they actually think that um native americans at least around this gate are physical manifestations of devils
1: there was a crazy amount of distrust of the indians because it's funny we perceived them as breaking treaties with us all the time and they perceived Mm -hmm. the same thing about us in reality tribes like the Utes and the Comanches were divided into a number of, like, uh, sub-tribes, sometimes even with their own languages. Uh, And when the U.S. government would sign a treaty with, say, like the Comanches, we would assume that we were signing it with the whole tribe. So then when another group of Comanches attacked us, we would be like, oh, the Comanches broke the treaty, so we're going to dishonor this treaty with them. And it was just kind of this crazy cycle of, like, racial hatred and misassumptions about each other's modes of living
3: yeah seven seven uh i think the utes were seven bands at the time that they went to washington to negotiate a a a treaty essentially Mm -hmm. and then they just named one of them the chief of the entire tribe despite the fact that there were seven other chiefs there
0: yeah the western idea of statehood and government doesn't really account for
1: that like sort of societal structure i guess i feel like we're getting into real history a lot here and i think we mm-hmm. should
2: tie the devils <laughs> i got <bored>. into this <laughs> uh yeah so i i was just thinking about how the devils could intercede here one angle could be like inflammation of anti-native rhetoric but that's less mm-hmm. interesting to me because like it's already a 10 right Like our history with natives is already so bloodthirsty that I don't even like see what's different. The highlight of the Indian
1: Wars. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, One angle could be that the native tribes have ways of curing uh, devilry or ways of maybe breaking contracts or something like that. Perhaps Um, ancient rituals that they brought over. From Israel where they're
3: from. These warming powers. Perhaps
2: there's an interesting conflict where like there's still all the racism mistrust, but like people realize that the natives have like real expertise in the matter. So there could just be some interesting friction there.
0: Alright, I'll try to avoid getting too bogged down in in cliff notes of actual history because there's just a couple things that I want to talk about but like so the gate opens in 45 the Mexican-American war kicks off literally the next year so I think that's the first exposure a lot of the devils have to our society and especially to the conflict and what it can do for them right and like oh this is delicious yeah so I think I think Mindicus has to be involved in the American expedition to Mexico Oh hell yeah! So that is led by a guy named Zachary Taylor, Zachary Taylor, who becomes president later on. So, I think basically that's the first exposure, and the reason that's so important is that like everybody important in the Civil War, like all the major generals, like pretty much cut their teeth in Mexico. And I think how this ends up happening is Mindicus acts as basically like a liaison or like an advisor to uh, Taylor against Santa Anna, and. All of this culminates in the fall of Mexico City, which uh, to cut a long story short, when Santa Ana lost the city, he let 30,000 prisoners that were just being held captive in the city loose. And I think the idea that I had was that instead of that being something that's motivated just by historical like stuff here, that a devil that had basically welded itself into the American expedition cut a deal with all 30,000 of those prisoners Their freedom, like, in exchange for half of what was left of their lives. Interesting. I I think the fall of Mexico City in this gets a lot bloodier
1: a lot faster because of that. That's kind of them testing the, like, limits of what their uh, chaos causing can kind of do, too. Yeah. You know what's interesting? When you said a devil embedded in the American Expedition, do you know who also was in the American Expedition? Uh, Longstreet, Pickett... Uh, Lincoln, uh, as well as Robert E. Lee, I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
3: Whoa.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was like like on both sides. So if you want to attach or get these historical figures into contact with devils, perhaps the American expedition to Mexico was uh, the devil's introduction to a lot of men who would later become prominent military men and political leaders.
0: Exactly. I think that (laughs) is how it spreads its way back east into Washington.
2: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> in, in, inserts American propaganda scenario where Lincoln is offered a contract. Says, no. I think – I'm far if Lincoln, too
1: honest. If Lincoln could take a contract <laughs> to like resolve the Civil War issue <laughs> in one way – I think there are certain things like the Civil War that are so complicated the devils can't solve them. I think that makes sense, right? Well, yeah. They just try – they don't want to. They just try to escalate it. Yeah. Right, right, right. So
0: Scott and Taylor are the two big leaders. And the idea that I had was that, like, if a devil had presented itself as the Archangel Gabriel to them, it was like, Ooh. there's going to be a great war in the United States, a cleansing, and we'll make uh, Taylor, in, uh, in this case, king of the North and Scott, king of the South, because Winfield Scott and Taylor are from the South and North, respectively. I think, I think, uh, that Taylor refuses him, and that's why he dies so early into
1: his presidency. Ooh.
2: <laughs>
1: I like that. So Taylor comes, an honorable man, Zachary Taylor. <laughs> Becomes <laughs> and president. And tariff reform, the one thing he did. <laughs> well, I think that once the devils make their
0: way into Washington, I think all the southern representatives, a lot of them are going to cut deals for money, basically, to, to their plantations <laughs> to flourish. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I think Thaddeus Stevens, who is a leader of the Radical Republicans, uh, cuts a deal for charisma, basically, mm. and I think they're a stronger faction. and I think abolitionists are stronger in this, Yeah, be- because that drives the tension up really high even more than in our world, where it's sure. already going crazy. Um, and then the violence ends up getting expressed directly in, in Bleeding Kansas, which is uh i think culminates basically in john brown's raid which he lost historically because he had like 30 guys and in the raid 23 of them were like became casualties nobody joined up with him i think in this he cuts a deal with a devil uh basically for i don't know i guess like a supernatural luck almost and i think or he, a
1: supernatural ability to
0: command you know yeah and I think he wins. And I think when he wins at Harper's Ferry and he repels the federal government, that it f- all of the uh, abolitionist elements of Kansas, all the free staters flock to him. And he basically forms an army and starts raiding
1: Missouri and recruiting slaves like into his army. So I think oh, the- that's super interesting because you know who had a big presence in Missouri? The Mormons. Uh hmm. They – while they were in the official like, state of Deseret, which is, for the listener, the Utah territory, mm-hmm. uh, they called it a state. It, the federal government refused to recognize it as a state for a long time because they were worried about its weird cultiness. They came from Illinois and from the area around Independence, Missouri, and they still had strong footholds there. Yeah. Uh, well, because Kansas – They were also staunchly pro-slavery, actually. Yeah. Well, the Kansas Territory is sandwiched between
0: what we would call Deseret and Missouri, and all what would happen is that people would come over from Missouri uh, and pretend to be from Kansas, like pro-slavery people, and they would vote in the elections in Kansas. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that like this sort of like John Brown ruled Kansas on the like doorstep of the Civil War is this almost third or
1: fourth faction influence like around the gate, like in Pike's oh, that's interesting because it gives the Mormons to, if the abolitionists want to use the devils uh, and abolish slavery, the Mormons are opposed to that on two fronts because they want to keep slavery and they want to get rid of the devils. Uh, so there's a huge ideological conflict there.
0: yeah hmm. So I think I don't like I don't really think that going into necessarily too much detail about the East is all that, like I mean about like the East Coast because we know what's happening there, like yeah, we're driving towards the Civil War, tensions keep racketing up um I think the place that it has the most direct impact is the place where the most violent struggle is happening, and that is Kansas at the time,
2: yeah, and I mean we could say i I think it's interesting um the the whole John Brown succeeds. Forms a slave liberating army. Uh, perhaps the Civil War happens in a more chaotic fashion and therefore more bloody fashion. Uh-huh.
3: I, I have an idea for that, actually. Okay, yeah, go on. We talked a lot about, like, uh, people from the States who have made deals with devils. Uh, you know, a lot of white people. I was reading something about, uh, you know, Geronimo, his family was killed by, um, by a Mexican force in like the thirties or something. Uh, I, I don't remember. That's something like the thirties. And then mm-hmm. he spent like the next 40 years leading an offensive against, like, de- it depends, you know, the Mexicans, the United States, uh, like a war for independence. Sure. Mm-hmm. part of the account was uh hold on i'm gonna f- i need to find it again um okay at least this is what apache tradition says he was burning his family's belongings um before heading into the forest and he th- says he heard a voice that told him that no gun will ever kill you i will take the bullets from the guns and i will guide your arrows which i th- it feels like it could be a contract
2: yeah well i i love the idea because the devils uh can support righteous causes too so long as it (laughs) escalates conflict Mm -hmm. i love the idea of sort of like django unchained style um like revenge porn type uh happenings with the, the various downtrodden and uh like yeah. the, the rebellions, the, the naval alliances, like all of that just becoming more successful and more vengeful. There's definitely more that's fuel real- for that
1: fire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there's odds of success or your odds are way higher. I right. think
0: that there would be way more slave rebellions in this antebellum uh
1: confederate, like
0: nascent confederacy. Because mm-hmm.
1: in real which life – Which means a more militarized south, which means when the civil war does happen – the South is actually more prepared because they've been fighting
2: all these <laughs> slave bills. That's scary, actually. Yeah, maybe there's one yeah. devil who's just been mm-hmm. paying attention the whole time and making sure the two forces are super evenly matched <laughs> <Right>. so it'll <laughs> last the maximum amount of time. <laughs> I do think that
3: there's a written contract which is, like, more ironclad um, that is... It's an idea from... Um, people from the east it's a a white person idea to have a written contract Mm -hmm. so but the idea of a verbal contract is a lot less like there's a lot less uh leverage that the devil could use in a verbal contract it it is kind of like a curse of the genie sort of thing where like i'll grant your wish but i'll grant it um i'll twist it Mm -hmm. but at the same time there's nothing to rip up there's like
1: there's no way you can die. Yeah, theoretically. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. I I think that uh, partially fueled by the power of this uh, verbal contract, um, Geronimo actually has more success creating a pan-native um, front.
2: Right. It's all and more successful.
3: Right. And at the start of the Civil War, it's like a three. <laughs> there's three like nations now. Oh, that are, not that not are so
1: fast, yeah. bud. Because. There's a fourth nation. Uh, oh, God, you're right. The most oppressed people in the United States. Oh, God. Where, <laughs> is, where
3: is Geronimo?
1: Where is Geronimo? Like I think Geronimo is – Geographically? I don't know enough about him, Geronimo's to be
3: honest. Geronimo's
1: Apache. Uh, New Mexico and Arizona, Okay, yeah, I'm just trying to as orient. As well as north, the north parts of Mexico. Okay, I'm just trying to orient myself, that's all. Yeah, yeah. So he's south of the great state of Deseret. I just want to see a map of this setting and it looked like the most chaotic thing. <laughs> yeah, I
2: think like there would be yeah. blossoming native nation states that drama fosters mm-hmm. in all of these states. I think perhaps mm, yeah. um, John Brown would be like doing some separatist stuff down south. Yeah, I, I, I guess it'd be splintered. I guess America would be patchwork.
1: Yeah, John
0: Brown I, is certainly raiding, the West like,
2: would be certainly the West would
1: be because that's where all this is seeping out from, you know. Right, I mean the West would be mm. absurdly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absurdly I think the same. East they still yeah. have the railroads there, and they still have the uni- the unity and strength of government to hold stuff together for a little bit, right? Uh,
3: By eighteen forty five, there was a lot of infrastructure already there, so it makes sense.
1: But yeah, uh, talking. Did you have more to add on the government,
0: Daniel? Oh, I, the only thing I wanted to clarify was that, like what John Brown is doing is he is raiding into the Confederacy to try and liberate more slaves. Um, well, the Confederacy doesn't exist yeah. yet, but it will. Missouri, Texas, but, um, or, yeah, yeah, Arkansas, yeah, maybe Louisiana, even. But the Texas yeah, future
3: site, future site of the Confederacy. Yeah, you watch he this had space. it on lock. He,
0: yeah. <laughs> he knew <what> would <laughs> I mean, those are the those are the slave holding states. So.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Okay. So I want to get to Walt. Um, yeah. So uh, talking about the Mormons.
1: Let's talk about Uh-oh. the Mormons. Uh, the Mormons have been kicked out of two states by now. Uh, they settled in Salt Lake City, Utah. The year's 1859. So the wife counter that Brigham Young has is going exponentially up. He's in double digits <laughs> oh right God. now, easily. Uh, polygamy and the excesses of Mormonism under Brigham Young are in full swing. The Lion of the Lord. The Lion of the Lord, indeed. This is something I wanted to address. So, the Mormons, Joseph Smith, in like before he was killed by a mob, uh, he gave like a speech in the 1830s called the White Horse Prophecy.
3: Sounds ominous.
1: Where he talks about the United States Constitution and he says that. There will be one day when the U.S. Constitution is threatened and the Mormons will have to step in on a white horse and save the country. And that is what they believe is happening now with the devils. Uh, They believe that the way to save the country is not just to have like a unified state of Deseret, but to have a Mormon theocracy that rules like from Washington – under brigham young or the church elders basically they have cut off most in real history the mormon wars were happening around this time which were a short series of wars between 1858 and 59 between the mormons and the u.s government that never really uh, never really turned out in any concrete engagements this obviously with the advent of conflict shit-staring devils fucking with the stability of the region i think we can feel safe to yeah. say that this war is going to be more chaotic and more lethal mm-hmm. than it currently like than it was in the real world
3: which was already pretty fucking bad mm-hmm. um it, it it was for the longest the civil war was for i think until until world war Two the single uh m- a single greatest source of american death in you know in no, the, it's, in still
1: the, was. it's still, it's still was. Was. yeah yeah, yeah. It's yeah. still and holy shit okay yeah yeah by far
2: yeah the the most casualties of any war america participated in a civil and war another fun
0: fact on that the state that had the highest percentage of kia casualties
1: is kansas in the civil war oh
0: that makes oh, sense shit.
2: that's fun yeah yeah uh,
1: okay so we'll go on so The governor of the state of Deseret is Governor Brigham Young, who's been in office in 1851, so like eight years now. He's kept power throughout rising tensions with the U.S. government, which is culminating currently in the Mormon War, which is still ongoing. Uh, They're demanding uh, annexation of the Colorado territory into Deseret. The United States, obviously, I would imagine is pretty antithetical to this idea of this separate theocracy existing out there one that is poked fun of in newspapers around the country around this time like mormons are like a laughingstock in the united states like they're super weird people don't like them they're made fun of all the time but through that they kind of built their own resistant culture where they endured mm-hmm. a lot of criticism and kind of they operated it's they made their own legacy media and institutions and traditions one of these is the Danites, the Destroying Angels, as they're called, a secret paramilitary Mormon group, more akin to like a secret society that operated uh, out of earlier Mormon settlements like Nauvoo and the settlement in Independence, Missouri that they had to abandon. The Danites. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Could
3: on. I just get you? Could I just get isolated? Could I get you to say. Secret paramilitary Mormon groups. Secret again. paramilitary Mormon groups. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I mean, that's, it was laughing, but it's fine.
1: These guys are hated by the US government. Uh, they're hated by the Indians as well, because they perceive the Ute tribe to be in league with devils. There's a lot of cultural misunderstanding there. It's really mm-hmm. like Geronimo, who's kind of, we established, like actually made a contract and has like supernatural power that he's using. Well,
3: right. Interestingly, um, a Geronimo is an Apache. Right. So, so he's Geronimo further is out the utes. Yeah,
1: yeah. But they kind of conflate a lot of Indians together, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I think we can they, yeah. safely say the Mormons were pretty racist uh, back then, perhaps the most racist of all of our factions thus far.
3: Right. I think there was a sea change in the Mormons where – they, because they think um, that Native Americans are a uh, lost tribe of so Israel, So The, the right?
1: Mormons believe that there were four tribes uh, from Israel that came over here uh, in addition to the 12 tribes that were already over there mentioned in the Bible. They believe in these four tribes, and there are only two really important tribes. Really, there's only one important tribe, and that's right. the Lehmanites, uh who were kind of – they followed this Mormon prophet or Israelite prophet technically who lived in the U.S. according to Mormon lore called Lehi. Uh, so they believe that Native Americans, if they're not descendants of the Lemanites, they're descendants of these three kind of less righteous tribes. So that kind of justifies a lot of Mormon uh, antipathy toward them
2: sense okay interesting so i i want the mormons to be more aware of the devils than yeah like I think the they populace are. at large i think that's interesting mm-hmm.
1: i think too that they're because they're out there i mean their territory is practically right next to pike's peak if you look at the old boundaries of the utah territory that they governed i think Their primary goal is the annexation of Pike's Peak, which maybe the Danites have already gone and done uh, and are Mm -hmm. just waiting for the government to try and fight them while they're trying to locate the gate. They're also out in the United States trying to find Mendicus, wherever he might be. They believe he's the Antichrist. Uh, They think he started all of this
2: and they think that they're living in the end times. Okay, Um. did they gain the knowledge of the devils from the devils? Like, did the devils appear to them? So the Mormons in their expulsion from Missouri,
1: no, Illinois by this point, in their expulsion from Illinois, they go towards Salt Lake City. Around 1846, I had sort of bluffed that the Mormons encounter the devils because the gate has been opened a year later, and that's while they're on their expedition there. So they're some of the first settlers to learn about them.
3: Well, they encounter they encounter the Utes, right? They they encounter the Utes while well, the Utes are still yeah.
1: Yeah, they encounter um, the Utes as well. That area, but the gate is also open by the time they get there. They walk past it to get to Salt Lake City.
3: Right. I, I think the Utes probably would have called it their
2: attention to it at some point. Like
3: yeah, they'd be like would oh, be like yeah, don't actually go up to Pike's Peak. People don't go to Pike's yeah, Peak they, anymore.
2: Dramatic irony: the Utes actually like. <laughs> Explain some stuff and point them in the right direction and (laughs) get totally (laughs) disregarded after. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my Uh, God. Perfect.
1: That's great. I like to imagine uh, that they do have Pike's Peak now. Uh, And then I don't know what the scope of Mormon wars against
2: the U.S. government would be like. Well, what if they're the paladins? What if they're the ones who are trying to uproot the devil influence they are for, for they're trying to find the
1: contracts big and,
2: success but yeah i think they've had some success
1: they're well, a some fanatical success, sure. group uh they're more fanatical right. even than the abolitionists in terms of what they believe in because this is the first time any supernatural stuff has ever happened mm-hmm. and their book they're kind of in the right place at the right time for supernatural shit mm-hmm. so i'd imagine that once all this devil shit gets around they're ironically a lot more Mormon converts uh, to Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, and there's people fleeing the East, like
0: in the strife there as well. uh Uh-huh. And like like people going West, people are going West on the trails still this entire time, right? But they're going through all this violent landscape and bleeding Kansas. So I think if they encounter the Mormons and they're relatively stable group in the West while all this is going on, people take comfort in like, and are more likely to
1: convert to religious like, Movements like that in those situations. Mm-hmm. The Mormons are the ones pledging to, like, stop the apocalypse from happening, you know, according to their lore. Uh, so they're acting out of the most sense of urgency, I think, within all the groups.
3: Sorry, did you say the Danites were the ones specifically hunting for devils?
1: Uh, I think the Danites would be involved in more of the military aspect. Okay. Mormonism's because Joseph Smith was a Mason... Uh, He incorporated a lot of Masonic elements into Mormonism and it was a religion that was awash with all these secret societies pretty much like right off the bat from the get-go. It was Mm -hmm. how they kept people in. Uh, He recognized you needed a lot of ritual to do that. The Danites were only one of these. They were more of a military arm and they kind of went quiet after some bad business in Missouri that got a lot of people killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They kind of had to operate in secret – now they're operating in the open once again from the freedom of the West, but there could be another secret Mormon society dedicated to going abroad. They're granted like exemption from typical Mormon behaviors. They're allowed to lie. They're allowed to act duplicitously in service of their goal. Uh, and they're kind of the espionage faction.
2: Oh, how oh So if they're the espionage faction, Or just like the Mormons in general, how do you think that they figure out who is contracted, who's gifted? Uh, I think, unfortunately, in this time period,
1: it would be a lot of rumor, right? (laughs) Yeah. It would be a lot of suspicion. Yeah. Exactly. Especially with the amount of – the state of the press in this time period was not super informative to people. So people would just publish shit that would get people killed all the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah
3: oh i- ima- I'm imagining like they know on some level that mendicus like they start to catch on that there are these centers that crop up where mendicus has has like uh maybe opened a new gate maybe caused something to happen that causes like a upwelling of new devils in the area they know that, but sometimes they very often actually they get they get it totally wrong and they go to a completely different place
1: yeah or they kill someone. Like, because if they can't destroy the contract, the next best thing is like, well, actually, since destroying the contract would kill you, and we've already been granted authority by God to, like, kill people who explicitly deal with the devil, and we suspect you of it, uh, we're going to kill you anyway. So it would be a lot of just murder of people. Like, I'd imagine finding yeah. a contract would be pretty rare.
3: Does a contract still persist if someone dies? Uh, like the, the actual paper it's written on.
2: That's interesting. Belvin? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it could just be useless yeah. paper. It could burn up. I don't have a strong feeling either I way. I think
1: it'd be interesting if the Mormons forged contracts after they killed someone to say, look, we found his contract. What <laughs> we did was... I <laughs> oh, <yeah>, think <that laughs> there'd be a lot of that happening, actually, yeah. so...
3: Oh, but but the reality is that if you kill someone who has a contract, the contract is like this metaphysical, like, creation right, of the, the gray it's world. It's very hard. So it just yeah, vanishes.
1: Yeah, so there actually is no – they're all fake.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I also Ooh. think that if there are a bunch of people running and gunning for people who sign contracts, it would encourage the actual signatories of contracts to be a lot more subtle in what they ask for so as to not be detected right away. And
0: it, what, is, what is interesting is, too, that there are going to be, especially in Missouri, uh, signatories of these contracts that are pro-slavery and are specifically currying favor with the Mormons because they are uh, mm-hmm. not abolitionists. So you're going to have plantation owners in Mississippi making deals to fund like, and send supplies to Mormons because they represent a counterweight that is pro-slavery mm-hmm. while being under the influence of the devils and being actively hunted by them.
3: Right. Right. Oh, yeah. We didn't, didn't mention of course that, uh, and don't, I don't really want to go too deep into it. Oh, luckily we're saying this near the end of the episode. Hmm. Um, it's a, near Mormons. the
1: midpoint of the episode. Yeah.
3: Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got another like couple hours out of this. Um, uh, Mormons very, very, and not, very not for black people. Very anti-African Americans. At this point, African, no, Americans.
1: yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely not. They had not
3: reversed uh, their stance It's on funny that. because
1: there were black Mormons at this time period. Uh, mm. Joseph Smith, we don't really know his position on slavery, but Brigham Young was very, very pro-slavery. And that was kind of due to, I think, like a lot of the political ambitions that he had at the time. Uh Joseph Smith, too. I mean, Joseph Smith ran for fucking president in, like, 18, uh Yeah, 1840. He lost to Polk. Uh, but, like, Joseph Smith's actual goal was, like, to become president of a theocracy. <laughs> that yeah. And I think that's still the goal in this setting, uh, in early Mormonism. Mm. They're a religion that has seen exponential growth. Uh, nothing but that since they were founded at this point in their history. And so they're riding a high.
3: I mean, that was basically... A uh, part of Joseph Smith's like intellectual legacy of that the of the white horse prophecy. On its face, it sounds ex- like he's saying that Mormons will take control of the government. Yeah,
0: well, and like Smith and Young, both of them like kind of exemplify like a like a, a messiah archetype, right? Like or a, a great preacher. I mean, getting stoned to death by a mob because they don't like what you're preaching is like the most preacher thing
1: ever to do. What's funny too is Brigham Young, and I was doing some research. Joseph Smith was like the prophet archetype, but Brigham Young was much more of the guy who, uh, he was like the administrative guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was the guy every, kind of every religion at this stage actually needs a transition from just prophet shit all the time to a person who's unpleasant to be around and can kind of get things done through the force of their personality. Uh, yeah, yeah. You got the face, together. and you
3: got the grease man. Right. right, he
1: was the grease man. He was a bruiser for Joseph Smith. He was a bodyguard for him uh, before he yeah. became uh, head of the church. And you got to have a forceful fucking personality to
0: convince a whole bunch of people to go set up shop in the desert around a useless lake.
1: Well, there were a ton and of Mormons who didn't. They told Brigham Young to fuck off. In fact, <laughs> there were. <laughs> this is the when Joseph <laughs> Smith died. It prompted the schism of Mormonism into like seven different sects. But we're not going to go into that. I think it's too much of the real history and it's kind of boring for the listener. Yeah. And also, we're at an hour and seven minutes. So that's the other no, thing. Yeah. This is a Mormon podcast now. So yeah. get ready for that. I, th-
3: I think we are pro- definitely approaching the point where we're going to have to start wrapping it up.
2: Well, yeah. so uh, I, I think we, <laughs> you got lots of good Mormon content in there. I think we have effectively fleshed out. Um, the saying in more detail, I feel like I understand more of what's going on. I think we found some cool new stuff. I would
1: like to introduce the character okay. of Brigadier General of the United States Army, Fraser Crane. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> oh, now we can... Finally! <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're getting somewhere. Oh, fr- Niles, oh Fraser, These Everest Indians are just bad. <laughs> uh, a, a guy wants a devil to make him more charismatic... And uh, also detestable, but still watchable. He goes, "I know a character for you." He makes him (laughs) Fraser Crane from early from hundreds of years in the future. Yeah,
1: Fraser is a stage play that the devils actually brought from.
3: oh my god is <laughs> fraser crane like that's the, our show it's <laughs> like,
2: oh my you know, god. there's a great sandman story where, where william shakespeare is given his great gift by morpheus the sandman in exchange for you know some favors the equivalent in this setting is a playwright is given the gifts to make the best work of all time. <laughs> Frasier. Oh, he makes 11 seasons of Fraser for the uh, well, stage.
1: 11, pl- 11 different reviews. Yeah, Frasier. <laughs> the musical comedy. Yeah, it, it,
0: It's a cycle. <laughs> a grand uh, well, opera.
2: That's, that's our show, I think. Uh, anyone got anything else to add? No, um, I, I think my favorite new element was the Django Unchained style, like yeah. new success yeah, of the minority factions i think that's cool love love Geron- geronimo I was a really the, cool guy i liked
1: the geronimo arc because it wasn't something i'd thought about so that was kind of my favorite element
3: i might be confl- conflating geronimo and tecumseh but Listen. i think what if in this let's say here's a new, here's a new sting forget this your craig <laughs> shit geronimo and tecumseh join forces Okay. There we go. We got, that's yeah. it. Southwest you went too Native far. Confederation. I'm
1: sure that I'm sure that map will make perfect sense. And if you want to email <laughs> us that map of all the shit we described,
2: <laughs>
1: you can email us uh, at 30minuteworlds@gmail.com. At uh if you like the episode, subscribe oh, to us. Oh, Geronimo,
3: sorry. Tecumseh was in Tecumseh <laughs> died in 1813. You've, Never mind. You've
1: interrupted my ending spiel. Three times, sir. It's just fine. You know what? (sighs) Thanks for listening, and as always, happy world building. That's it. I'm not going to do the Uh, ending spiel. Bye.